God is good. All the time. Happy Tuesday to each and every one of you. If you're joining us online, happy Tuesday to you as well. If it's Tuesday or Thursday, Saturday, whenever you're watching Bible study, we are blessed to have you with us. Um, it's raining. It's cold. It's, it, it's nap time is what it is. Uh, we'll try not to put you to sleep here during the Bible study. And uh, it's, it's a really short chapter today. Uh, it's like the shortest chapter in all of uh, Corinthians. Uh, we've added to, uh, another version as well because it gets a little convoluted. But uh, we'll get to that here in a moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we give thanks for this autumn rain. Let this rain come down. Make the grass green. Help the harvest grow. Clean off the dirt and the muck off the streets, off our cars, off our houses. Lord, let your mercy rain down. And clean out the muck and the dirt and the grime of our lives. Lord, let your grace rain on down. That instead of throwing bombs and bullets... That we, might, that we might just offer signs of reconciliation, signs of peace. Like I said in prayer this Sunday, Lord, it would take a miracle. But we also know that you're in the miracle business. Help us to read these words that even though they might, might not seem like they apply to us today, in their own way they do. Even after 2,000 years, your word still speaks. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, short chapter. We have uh, on your tables two versions of the Scripture, the NIV, New International Version. It is one of the most common Bibles out there. Uh, it came out in 1984, I believe. They updated it recently in the last few years, but uh, uh, it kind of keeps... The, the poetic, uh, some of the poetic license of, of the King James, but updates it some. But even after reading this chapter in, in the NIV, I'm the pastor, and there were times I went, oh, what, what exactly is Paul saying? And so in the, in the colored version uh, is the message, a, a really up-to-date, almost novel-ish kind of way of looking at Scripture. And uh, what, what the NIV did in this amount of space, the message put it in this much space, trying to make sense of what, what Paul's trying to say. So we're going to read a little bit of both here. Um, so let's, let's jump in. We've been talking about sexual immorality for the last couple chapters, and now we have this switch. And chapter 8 just deals with food. What to do with food. Um, which is why it's really short, because in chapter 9 he jumps into other things. But uh, let's, on the NIV side, let's, use, let's just do verses 1 through 3. 1 through 3. Concerning food sacrificed to idols. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds, builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. And just for fun, can someone read the same passage except from the message? 
The question keeps coming up regarding meat that has been offered up to idol. Should you attend meals where such meat is served or not? We sometimes tend to think we know all we need to know to answer these kinds of questions. But sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. We never really know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. Foods. Why is this a big deal enough to get scripture like this? Uh... Having dealt with their questions about, um, about marriage, about singleness, Paul now addresses their next set of questions, and this one happens to be about eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. This is not just random food. This is food that has been taken to the temple, uh, put on pagan altars, and usually when the, when the food is, 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 is put on the altar... Uh, pagan altars, it's divided into three portions, okay? Uh, what could you do with, why, why divide it into three? What, what, what are they, they going to do to, these, uh, to, to, to this food? Any guesses? The one-third goes to the, uh, to the people who work the temple. <laughs> that's, that's, how you pay, that's how you pay the priests in food. I am not opposed to that plan at all. <laughs> like that plan. Um, my father-in-law, an accountant, um, worked in a farming community, and at tax time, he would get a side of beef or 13 chickens or something <laughs> uh, for his services. So one-third, pay for, pay for the priest. Let the priest eat. Uh, what would you do? What could you do with another third? Burn it. We're going to burn it. It's an, it is the offering to God. God's lowercase g. Up it goes, up in smoke. And the other third, they would sell. There literally was a store attached to the temple. Have you ever been to places and uh, you, you, you spend 10 minutes in the place and a half hour in the gift shop? Where you spend more time in the gift shop than you do wherever it is that you went to go see? The temple had, they had a gift shop where they would sell the meat that was offered up. It was another way to help pay, pay for the expenses. Uh, it was sold at the temple restaurant or in the local meat market. Uh, the meat served and sold at the temple was generally cheaper. I know you would never do this, but the meat that was generally offered or the food was generally offered at the temple was uh, the parts that they might not want. Um, we did a trick-or-treating thing with the kids uh, once. Uh, kids at the church, where they would tithe a tenth of their candy. It was kind of a way to teach, this is what a tithe is. A tithe. So whatever, whatever your haul is on Halloween, you would have to give 10% to the children's ministry, and the children's ministry took it to the fire department and the police department and said, have fun with this. Uh, so they donated it. Uh, but the 10% that always came in was the candy that they didn't want. <laughs> We had a whole bunch of Three Musketeers in there. Then, <laughs> uh, So the meat that's generally donated to the temple might have been on the lower quality as well. Uh, <laughs> but but there, there, there literally was a meat market for this. So the question was, can we buy this meat that has been 
offered as a sacrifice to gods that we don't believe in. Is it morally wrong for us to do that? That was the question of, of the day. Jesus spoke about love and kindness and mercy and grace, and everyone after him talked about what does that mean? What are the rules? Where's the line? Talks about love. Great. Who can love? What can we love? <laughs> we, we like to make our, our rules. And they wanted to make these rules. What about this food? I don't know if you know this, but Jewish people are very particular about kosher food. No pork. Uh, that, was, that was the Sunday. Pigs, 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 pigs. Um, and the Gentiles, they didn't have any food restrictions at all, but all of a sudden, if we're Christian, can we take this food that's been offered? Hmm. Someone once asked me, Pastor Mike, if I win the lottery and I tithe to the church, would you accept it? I have pastor friends who would say they would not take that. It is, it is blood money. It's tainted. It's sinful money. Uh, my feeling is I worry more about if I worry more about money's destiny than its pedigree. I'll always cash the check. So that's 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 where this chapter is going, um, and then he goes into some knowledge talk. Um, Paul first talks about the principles of knowledge and love. Our behavior is founded on love, not knowledge. Again, this is Greece. Knowledge is king. Philosophy is king. But the goal of the Christian life is not knowledge, but, but love for each other. Knowledge is great. Love is better. Uh, later on, we get a chapter, but these three things, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Yeah. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, if we think we know it all, we don't know anything. <laughs> Uh, yet there is knowledge that it, it is important. Um, the knowledge God has of those who love him. If anyone loves God, this is, this is known by him. I really think this is Paul's big chapter of saying, say, Dear Paul, what about food? What about... And Paul, I, I swear Paul just wants to write back and say, Let it go. It's not that important. Why are you bothering me with this? But it's important to them, so he writes back. Questions on, on this opening salvo of chapter 8. In the message part where it says that um, our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds, brought to mind that there are situations that are presented to us when in everyday life that our gut is going to tell us, you shouldn't do that. Even though your mind says, oh, maybe I should do that. Why shouldn't I do that? Everybody else is doing it. We're going to have a big party. We're going to go and do something that um, might not be in our best interest. Um, I don't swim well, so why would I get on a boat? But everybody else is on the boat. But my gut tells me that, no, don't do that. Gut reactions are, are great reactions to have. Common sense is awesome, but it's not that common anymore. <laughs> and sometimes I've learned that it's more important to be loving than to be right. 
If you've been married five minutes, you figured that out. <laughs> Yesterday. And it goes both ways, you know. And, and, and it's a, there are times that my wife knows that I am the dumbest person on the planet, but will just go with me because it's... Because she loves me, and it, it's, it's not a deal breaker in her family. <laughs> Did we really drive 20 miles so you can get a pickle at that one store? Like, yes, we drove 20 miles out of our... I'm, it was stupid. Yeah, you're right, but uh, that's a true story, by the way. Uh, it was in the Amana colonies in Iowa. If you ever been there, yeah, home, yeah, homemade from the from the Amish. It was it was worth twenty miles. Yeah. All right, let's do verses four through six. Just that one little paragraph there. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. And does someone want to read the NIV version on the right side of that? Some people say, quite rightly, that idols have no actual existence and there is nothing to them, that there is no God other than our one God, that no matter how many of these so-called gods are named in worship, they still don't add up to anything but a tall story. They say, again quite rightly, that there is only one God the Father, that everything comes from him, and that he wants us to live for him. Also, they say, there is only one master, Jesus the Messiah, and that everything is for his sake, including us. Yes, it's true. Okay, that one is not as convoluted, which is nice. There's one true God. Idols are not competing gods. Paul's saying idols are nothing, nothing in this world. They, they are only so-called gods. The danger is when people believe in these idols. Uh, in reality, there's nothing there. Only if you believe in them is there a danger. My kids, when they were younger, Dad, there's a monster in my room. Dad, there's a something underneath my bed. Dad, there's something. There's nothing there. But they believed it. <laughs> and so we had to go in and fix this, right? Which did not help when I looked underneath my bed and went, Oh, my gosh! And, and <laughs> which freaked my middle kid out, like, <laughs> That was a very dumb thing to do. That was a very dumb thing to do. That was a very dumb thing to do. Um, yes. If, if you ever run into Christian, ask him about zombies in the basement. Because uh, what he was, he was, you know, you turn off the light in the basement and then you run upstairs. Cause you, you ever have that? Where they, <laughs> if you turn off the lights, the lights go off and you got to run upstairs because there's light. And four-year-old Christian, run, run. <laughs> oh, he did not sleep that night. Uh, it was not good. If meat is if meat is offered to Zeus, you know there's no real Zeus. There's no other god but one. Uh, he's only one of these so-called gods. And and 
Who cares if food has been uh, offered to nothing? There's no spiritual hovering over it because it's, it's empty. It's nothing. I think that's what Paul's trying to say. There, there's no spirit. It's not tainted. There's no spiritual tainting on this. When I bless the food, uh, when we give thanks at our house, even if it's in the name of the one true God, does that food change? Does something mystical happen to the food? No. Is it more healthy if we do that? No. The calories are still there. Right? It doesn't taste better. And absolutely nothing happens. But what happens here? That's the appreciation. Thank you. If I go to a wedding, and very rarely do I go to the wedding reception. Uh, sometimes I get invited, but no one wants to sit next to the pastor, so I don't go. <laughs> and I got my family back home anyway. Uh, but if I, if I knew the couple enough that I would have been invited to, to the wedding and reception anyway, um, if I was the pastor or not the pastor, then I go to the reception, right? Uh, and sometimes, we're going to have a big party. Is it going to be a big party? And every now and then, they ask me to give a blessing at the meal. And then I, after the blessing, something changes. The party changes. The tenor of the event changes. Instead of a wild shindig, it's still a fun party, but it's, it's, it's been blessed and now has this covering of everyone has this idea that it is, it's a sacred event. So that's what changes. The food, the, the chicken is still the same. The roast beef is still the same. It's just that we change. There's no other gods. There, there's, a, there's a line in, uh, well, we, when we do God in Scripture or in writing, uh, when we talk about the Christian God, it's a big G, right? Big G. And we talk about the other gods, it's a little G. Yeah. In Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, in the next letter that he writes, he actually calls Satan the God of this age. Little G. And so Paul, Paul doesn't think that, you know, we do call other things gods, uh, but he doesn't mean Satan as a true god, like a rival god. He, but he calls him the god of this age because it's regarded by a god by so many people. There's so many gods, so many lords, but there's just one. And we, 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 we kept that from the Judeo uh, world, from the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Israel was the, one of the first monotheistic societies out there. One God. Overall, in all, through all, one. Uh, the Corinthian Christians may have reasoned like this. You know, if idols are really nothing, then uh, it must mean nothing to, it must mean nothing to eat meat sacrificed to nothing idols. Um, it must mean nothing to eat in the buildings used to worship these nothing idols. But in the following section, Paul is going to show them a better way. Paul's saying, there's nothing wrong with eating this, but there's a big but in here, and we're getting to it. Let's do verse 7. NIV, one little verse. But not everyone 
possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Okay, that took four lines for NIV, and the message took one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Eleven lines to say the same thing. Let's hear uh, what what they say. In strict knowledge, in strict logic, this nothing happened to the meat when it was offered up to an idol. It's just like any other meat. I know that, and you know that. But knowing isn't everything. If it becomes everything, some people end up as know-it-alls who treat others as know-nothings. Real knowledge isn't that insensitive. We need to be sensitive to the fact that we're not all at the same level of understanding in this. Some of you have spent your entire lives eating idle meat and are sure that there is something that in the meat that then becomes something bad inside of you. And imagination and conscience shaped under those conditions isn't going to change overnight. The Corinthian Christians who felt free to eat at the pagan temple may have based their freedom on correct knowledge, knowing that the idols are nothing, knowing where they're eating in the temple is nothing. But for some, they have the consciousness of that idol. They grew up with it. And they eat meat sacrificed to the idol as a thing offered to the idol. We can't eat this anymore. We are, we're Christians. We can't eat this anymore. And Paul rightly says, you can eat it. There's nothing in an idol. But if you have that in your heart that this is wrong, then fine. Then go with that. Uh, Paul asked the Corinthian Christians who know that there is nothing to an idol to remember that not everybody's on the same page. And if someone believes there is something to an idol and they eat meat that's been sacrificed to the idol, then their conscience being weak is, is, is defiled. Uh, not weak. Uh, weak doesn't mean like conscious doesn't work. It just uh, actually means that oh, uh, their brains overwork. Uh, their conscience is considered weak because it's wrongly informed. Um, you, you, you can see the, the, the free thinking Corinthian Christians with their superior knowledge saying, but we're right. There's nothing wrong with this food. And in this case, being right is important, but not as important as showing love to the family of God, because some people are saying it's right. It's just a fight over food. Like I said, sometimes even if you're right, just let it go. Just let it go. Is, is this thoroughly confusing yet? Are, you, are, are we all good so far? Okay. Of all the things in Scripture to talk about, this, this, this takes up a whole chapter. But it also shows you the times. What was important to them 2,000 years ago? Because Paul and Peter recently just freaked out the Christians, the Jewish Christians, when they said, you know what? It's okay to eat pork. It's okay to eat things with more than so many hooves. It's okay to eat shellfish. What God has made, you know, God has made clean what was unclean. Anyone want to volunteer to read the shortest one that you'll have in a long time? 
And food, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. And on the right side, uh, it says eight to nine, so we'll do that one paragraph there. But fortunately, God doesn't grade us on our diet. We're neither commended when we clean our plate, nor reprimanded when we just can't stomach it. But God does care when you use your freedom carelessly in a way that leads a fellow believer still vulnerable to those old associations to be thrown off track. If you have your Bible, go to Acts chapter 15. Acts is just a couple books to the left. Acts 15, 1 5. So Paul is starting these churches all throughout the Mediterranean, and a couple churches also grew up in the Holy Land. And they're all kind of having these questions, what does it mean to be Christian? And so the, the apostles, the, the, the elders with the whole church decided to choose some people, and they wrote a letter. Uh, this uh, about what to do. So 15, go to uh, 29. This is at the end of the letter. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The letter from the apostles, from Peter, James, John. Uh, not James, he's already dead. Peter, John, and... <laughs> Uh, the other uh, apostles, the disciples of Christ, to all the believers. This, this is what you do. Don't eat the food from idols. And Paul here is saying, don't worry about it. It's just food. If we eat it, great. If you don't eat it, great. No one is less or more spiritual from, from, from abstaining from from meat sacrificed to idols. So it's, it, this is the very point where most stumble in issues related to our Christian liberty. What can we do? Can we, can I go see a rated R movie and still be a Christian? Can I listen to this kind of music and still be a Christian? Can I drink? Can I uh, watch uh, this kind of TV show? Um, where, where, where's the lines of Christian living? And, and in my head, I'm kind of mocking their food a little bit, but that was their fight 2,000 years ago. But we still have those discussions today. It's easy to preach about Christ and about love and mercy and grace and all, the, all those Christian attributes. But Pastor Mike, what does that mean? Where are those lines? Uh, the theologi uh, the, believe it or not, the Methodists have a theological statement. Uh, if you ever read the Discipline, which is the, the Methodist rule book, and God help you if you ever do, because it's, it's long. Uh, but it says, basically, it's, uh, there's a theological statement that every generation has to figure out what it means to walk the Christian walk. Because if I pop myself up, and I think I'm a good Christian little Methodist boy, and if I pop myself up and I pop myself over to the, to the 1500s, drop myself down, I would be so far out of place. Not, on, not only historically, but uh, Martin Luther would nail 95 Thesis to my heart, like Pastor Mike, on all sorts of issues. 
uh, just like if you pop me into the future someday, I'll be totally surprised at where the Christian faith is. Uh, some people think the Christian faith is dying. It's not dying. Every generation has got to figure it out. We have more Christians now than we did in 1920. 19, it, it goes up and down in Christian faith in, in, the, in, in the American life. Uh, how many Christians are out there running around? We had the Great Awake. We, we hardly had any in the 1700s. Uh, there were churches there, uh, but most people didn't go. Uh, 1820s, we had the Great, uh, the great Awakening, and everyone kind of, oh, we should, we should probably rethink this and go back to church. And they all went back to church. Then the Civil War, and they went, everyone, no one, no one went to church after the Civil War. Uh, a little bit in the 1890s, down again. Um, we, we kind of hit a low point in the, in the early 1900s. World War I did not help. Uh, 1920s, not so much. World War II. After World War II, the horrors of, of, what, of what some of your parents uh, went through, uh, we got to get back to this. And so 1950s, 1960s, that was the high point of Christianity in America. And now we're, we're kind of going back down a little. Uh, every church, not only mainline denominations, but also uh, uh, non-denominationals are, are, are they're, they're smaller than they were just 10 years ago. Uh, but it comes and goes and goes and comes. I don't, know what the, I don't know what kind of church my kids will have. I know there'll be one. Because the church of Jesus Christ will live. Every now and then on my feed, my news feed, it says, churches are, and it's, it's it, granted, it, if, if, the, uh, if the headline is bad, people click on it. Uh, but I, I, I think the spirit of Christ is growing. I think the kids that are coming up are fantastic. There's more volunteering from, from the next generation than I ever did. My generation ever did. They care more about the planet than I ever did. They care more about each other than my generation. Maybe it's just my generation. <laughs> Maybe it's just Generation X. Uh, but when you look at the world and think, what? where is it going? Like, I would rather live now than most other decades. Um, and it's our job to see, see what the future brings. All right, we better finish this up. Let's do verse, well, the whole next chapter, for, uh, paragraph 4. Uh, the NIV. This, this is where Paul's trying to get to the crux of the matter. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for, to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be embodied, emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. And on the right side, two paragraphs out of that. For instance, say you flaunt your freedom by going to a banquet thrown in honor of idols, where the main course is meat, 
sacrificed to idols. Isn't there great danger of someone still struggling over this issue, someone who looks up to you as knowledgeable and mature, sees you go into that banquet? The danger is that he will become terribly confused, maybe even to the point of getting mixed up himself in what his conscience tells him is wrong. Christ gave up his life for that person. Wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to dinner for him? Because, as you say, it doesn't really make any difference. But it does make a difference if you hurt your friend terribly, risking his eternal ruin. When you hurt your friend, you hurt Christ. A free meal here and there isn't worth it at the cost of even one of these weak ones. So never go to these idle-tainted meals if there's any chance it will trip up one of your brothers or sisters. A Corinthian Christian with uh, superior knowledge might feel the personal liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But are they exercising this liberty in a way that becomes a stumbling block to someone who's not as knowledgeable? We always think, uh, I'm going to do right, I'm going to do right, I'm going to do right, and everyone else, they, it, it, it's on them for what they do. And Paul is kind of opening up this idea of social responsibility. My, I got my family, uh, good Germans, I'm the only one in my family that doesn't drink. I don't know how I got out of that town with, like, people can't believe that Abeneshek is a pastor in that town. Uh, but my brother, my, I, but I got a cousin who does not drink as well because he's a recovering alcoholic. And when he comes over for dinner, my family doesn't drink. Even though they could, and it's their right, and it's their heritage, it's just everything about them. But for his sake... They, they, can't, they can't put that on them, right? That's, that's kind of how I look at Paul's, Paul's uh, logic here. If, if what you're doing, even if it's acceptable in your family and, it's, and it, it, it's, it's fine, if it causes someone else to mess up out of love, just don't do it. Don't do it. Well, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And if you're curious where this blessing comes from, it is, it is from Numbers. Uh, it is the priestly breast blessing uh, that comes out of, out of the first five books of the Bible. Uh, so that's why I share this all the time. It's the priestly blessing that they would say at the end of, of temple. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Amen.